0: Welcome back to Season 4 of the Stronger by Science Podcast. In today's episode, we reflect on the four-year anniversary of our monthly research review called Monthly Applications in Strength Sport, also known as MASS, which Greg and I write alongside our co-authors, Dr. Mike Zordos and Dr. Eric Helms. Now, as we were recording the episode, I referred to it as our fifth anniversary, but it was later brought to my attention that as we are in our fifth year of MASS, it is actually our fourth anniversary, or you could say the first anniversary of our third anniversary celebration. So I profusely apologize for spreading this misinformation. Uh, It is indeed anniversary number four. To commemorate this big occasion, we've released a free best of mass issue, and we're also launching a big charity sale from April 27th through May 4th. In today's episode, we also have research reviews about testosterone boosters and barbell velocity tracking technologies, along with a Coach's Corner segment about sticking points, some very shocking information about eels, and much more. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today, I'm going to be joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing?
1: I am doing well. How are you?
0: I am doing well. Uh, Starting out with a quick announcement here. Obviously, last episode was the first episode of season four. We mentioned that we are working on developing a diet app, and we got a lot of really good uh, feedback about that. A lot of people were really excited about that. Uh, so first of all, thanks. We we really appreciate all the interest and excitement related to that, uh, that announcement. Uh, we will be sure to keep you posted as things progress. Like I said in the last episode, we're still a ways off from actually bringing it to market and making it available, but uh, we are working diligently, and we will absolutely keep you posted. Uh, in the meantime, quick sellout segment—you uh, know what to do. Go over to bulksupplements.com, five percent discount. That's huge savings. You, you type in SBS Pod, all caps, when you check out for a five percent discount on all your supplement needs. Okay. How about some good news, Greg? Got any good news for me?
1: Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Uh, so I, uh, I came across an article, uh, from the goodnewsnetwork.org, NASA confirmation Earth is safe from asteroid for 100 years. So there is an asteroid called 99942 Apophis, Apophis, um, it was discovered in 2004 and, uh based on estimates of its size and its trajectory and you know general general newtonian physics uh there was a fear that it might impact earth in 2068 uh and you know it, it wouldn't be like a destroy all life type event uh it's not as big as the din is as the asteroid that likely wiped out the dinosaurs uh but it's a big one it's a little over a thousand feet across and uh yeah scientists discovered it and they said oh there's there is a non-trivial chance that this might hit earth and cause some uh pretty pretty intense damage in 2068 anyway um it recently made another near pass by earth and by near pass i mean uh you know still like 10 million miles away but that's a near pass in astrological terms uh, and that allowed nasa to study it more closely uh, get a better idea of its size and mass so they could rerun their calculations and they have confirmed beyond uh, you know any any reasonable doubt uh, that it is not going to hit earth and kill a lot of people in 2068 uh, so as far as i can tell that is very very good news I feel like people are way less freaked out about asteroids than they should be. Uh, Two things worth being freaked out about that I think aren't on enough people's radar. Asteroids and solar flares. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, uh, this particular asteroid, which uh, scientists were quite concerned about, don't need to be concerned about this particular one. And that is very good news.
0: We did it. I mean, how many are floating out there? Like a dozen? Two (laughs) dozen? Millions. (laughs) Okay. Well,
1: yeah. Like the, the thing about asteroids is there's a bunch of them and they're hard to detect because, you know, unless they are made of like particular minerals that, um, you know, reflect light, uh, it's hard to see them because they're generally not big enough to have like a radiation signature, which is generally how we pick up like stars and planets and whatnot, Uh, they're generally not massive enough to bend light around them enough to to pick them up uh, using, like, relativity. And so, like, dude, there might be some very, very spooky asteroids out there that could do some some serious damage. Um, And my understanding is that based on our current technological capacities, if... Like if one was on a collision course with Earth, we would not be able to n- notice it quickly enough to intercept it and keep it from like wiping out all life on Earth or at least like wiping out a major city or something. Um, so anyway, that that is something that astrophysicists are, are very invested in doing a better job of uh, identifying asteroids and, and trying to figure out ways to you know, pull off like an Armageddon scenario to keep them from, you know, being able to fuck us up too bad. Uh, but I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, so yeah, every time I learn about a new asteroid that's probably not going to kill us, it helps me sleep a little bit easier at night.
0: I think that's perfect for the good news segment. I think everybody's really uh, feeling great after hearing that. Uh, I, I've got some... <laughs> got some light-hearted we, do, we usually don't do good news segment to give people millions of new things to worry about very literally but well
1: i, I didn't talk about solar flares either
0: yeah well it, yeah we can save that for a different good news segment when we really want to get people excited sure uh i've got a slightly more lighthearted approach to the good news segment uh, a, a very happy ending here so uh, unfortunately there's this eight-year-old boy his sister uh was choking uh that's not good news but uh this eight-year-old boy saved his sister's life uh because he learned cpr from john cena on a nickelodeon show that's so, awesome two things first of all this is the the natural consequence of getting really jacked like this is the trajectory we should all be aspiring to in the fitness world get so jacked that you become a great wrestler be so charismatic there that you become a great actor, and then all of a sudden you have the opportunity to teach CPR to the masses and save who knows how many lives John Cena has saved at this point by teaching CPR. At least one. At least the confidence interval ranges from one to seven billion, I would say. It's somewhere in there. So first of all, that's cool. Good for you, John Cena. Very jacked. Very good at teaching CPR, apparently. And... This just brought me a lot of joy uh, because, little known fact, I used to be certified to certify people in CPR. What? I'm an absolute master of the art of CPR. Uh, yeah, I used to certify, you know, a couple dozen people a year, run my little CPR course. Uh, no longer in the business. It was hard to keep up with. It's a fast-changing industry, and I, I just kind of had to hang it up. But, yeah, as a former CPR instructor, this brought me a lot of, a lot of joy.
1: How often did "Staying Alive" by the Bee Gees get stuck in your head?
0: Uh, constantly. Yeah, there's two of them, right? It was uh, "Staying Alive" and another one bites the dust. Yeah. Um, but I would always go "Staying Alive." Oh, for in, sure. In my mind, you know, it's it's just too snappy. You, you, you can't pass that up.
1: Also, uh, th- I don't I don't know if you could call this good news, but uh, if you didn't watch The Office when it was on TV, dear listener. Find the Office Cold Open, where they're uh, doing like a a CPR instruction. It is probably a top three Office Cold Open. It's so funny.
0: Yeah, that that is a good one. Um, All right. Well, there's some good news for us. What about some feats of strength?
1: Yeah, sure. So I have uh, one, two, three, four this week, Uh, starting off with probably the big one, uh, Lasha, whose last name I will not attempt to pronounce Georgian weightlifter. That's Georgia the country, not the state. Uh he recently snatched two hundred and twenty-two kilograms or four hundred and eighty-nine pounds. That is a new world record, which breaks his old world record. Um and uh <laughs> he's so strong. I I really, really, really uh want him to either go like 230 270 at the Olympics or Uh, The kilograms that correspond with uh, 500 snatch, 600 clean and jerk. I I think that would be, what, 227, 228, and about 275, 273, I think. Um, But he's putting up numbers that are absolutely absurd. Nothing looks hard for him, which, I mean, like, weightlifting doesn't look as hard as powerlifting because you have to move things explosively, but... Boy, does it look like he still has some, some strength in the tank, uh, so strong and really, really just have my fingers crossed that he does something absurd at the Olympics. Uh, moving on to powerlifting, Jacqueline Cornwell, a female lifter, squatted 570 pounds in the 148 class in knee wraps, uh, that breaks Stacey Burr's record in the class that I, I believe we also talked about on the podcast, um, I had not heard of Jack of Jacqueline Cornwell before. Uh, It seems like she's been making some fairly quick progress. Uh, The lift looked great. Looked like she had quite a bit more in the tank too. So uh, really, really good stuff for her. Mariana Gasparian, who we've absolutely talked about in Feats of Strength before, uh, a 132 pound weight class female lifter, uh, recently squatted in training, 257 kilos or 566 pounds for a double, uh, that's two kilos over her current world record and she did it for a double and, uh, I could, I could very easily see her squatting over 600 pounds in her next meet, um, at 132, which is (laughs) just bad shit crazy, uh, she's so strong and, and with that double, like it, it looked like she had a, a fair bit more in the tank as well. Uh, so just absolutely insane shit from her. Uh, and finally, uh, a deadlift from Nabil Lalu. Uh, sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but, uh, a French junior lifter. I, I think he's 21 years old, uh, Deadlifted uh 320 kilos or 705 pounds in the uh, he, he and this was in training, uh but he competes in the 66 kilo weight class or 145 pounds. Uh the current IPF world record in that class is three hundred and three and a half kilos or six sixty-nine. Uh and a key difference between this lift and some of the other training deadlifts that we've talked about on the podcast before is uh, he did it without straps. So, I mean, there's no reason to think that he's not good for that on the platform. Um, and you, you should really go check out that lift. Uh, he is someone who looks like he was put on this planet to deadlift. Um, lockout right at knee height, just the way the good Lord intended. Uh, it's it's a thing of beauty.
0: Yeah, you were so mad. Cause he I had, was so mad. He had a post where he said like, when you're sumo deadlifting, make sure you keep your hips high. And you're like, yeah, I mean, that that would be great if I had long arms, but here we are. Yeah,
1: no, I... Uh, so w- when I'm pulling deadlifts for reps, like, you know, anything more than like a triple, I intentionally don't lock out the early reps of a set because my deadlift lockout is above testicle height. And so if, if I lock out 10 straight deadlifts, like, my testicles are going to hurt after the set. So... There is an entire body body segments difference between where his lockout is, which is at the bottom of his femur, and where mine is, which may actually be above the top of my femur. I, I don't know. I I don't think my uh, I don't think my arms actually reach my greater trochanter when I'm standing. So uh, yeah, I, I am definitely envious of his deadlift leverages.
0: <laughs> no, I mean it's crazy. His his deadlift is. Is truly something special, but you you watch the video and he is locking out at the top of the patella. Yeah. Like it it, it is, like you said, he is made to deadlift and boy, is he putting that to good use for sure. And he's still
1: young too. And it it looks like he could add a ton of muscle to his frame. Oh yeah. Like, I mean, I I could see him, I don't know if he moved up a one weight class, I, I think the next one's 74. I could see him pulling over 800 in the 74 class.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he's getting so strong so quickly too. Like he, he's really ramping it up. So there, I don't think I'd feel comfortable putting a cap on any estimate, you know, like, like of what he could do at the next weight class or the one after that, dude, I don't know. He's, he's going to do what he wants to do with his deadlift. Okay. Uh, moving on to the next segment, uh, every now and then we do an article discussion. If we like put out some content and we want to talk through some of the feedback or the reception. Um, in this case, we're going to do a discussion about a mass issue and it's a very special, uh, special mass issue uh, because it is our best of, we put out a best of issue every year right around anniversary time. Uh, so the mass Five-year anniversary is coming up, and along with that is one of our big charity sales that we do. So the, the nice thing about this issue, we went back through the last year of issues and kind of picked out our favorite articles. This is going to be accessible to everybody. It's not just for subscribers. I think you get on the email list to get this issue. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you can get on the email list, get this uh, special issue for free. Uh, and like I said, it, it corresponds with our big charity sale. So from April 27th to May 4th, that's a Tuesday through a Tuesday, uh, that's when our sale is running. Uh, I have no idea when this episode's going to air, but it's we're going to get in before that sale. So this is relevant information. Uh, so yeah, our sale prices are are obviously lower than normal. And uh, the really nice thing is we're giving 100% of proceeds from new monthly subscriptions. Uh, But, of course, we also have yearly and annual subscriptions as well. So for those, we give $21 per subscriber. And all those proceeds go to the One Acre Fund. Uh, And you picked out the the charity for this particular sale. Do you want to say something about the One Acre Fund?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I really, really like the One Acre Fund uh, for a few reasons. One, I think they're working to address... um, A very real problem in the world that often goes undiscussed so uh, a lot of a lot of people especially in poor countries still do subsistence agriculture like that's one of the main ways that that people and villages and towns are are able to eat um and that so between a lot of factors like between poverty and droughts and famines and whatnot um still like close to 10 million people per year die of hunger in the world like eight to nine million people uh and you know there's obviously no silver bullet one size fits all uh solution to that but one of the things that can help a lot is being able to shore up uh smallholder farms and so, uh, one, I, I think One Acre Fund is is tackling a very real and important problem. And two, I really, really like the model that they use. So, uh, basically, the, the there are issues with just like delivering food to people in need. Like, obviously, if there is like an acute famine or drought or something, that's something that's absolutely necessary. But when there are food shortages in areas where there are also farmers, that can that can actually hurt the farmers because like now free food is flooding the market it makes it harder for them to sell their stuff um, you know and so you can run into issues there um, one of the other approaches to helping out smallholder farmers is basically just to give them seeds give them equipment stuff like that uh, and that's absolutely a, a great way to address that problem but it's somewhat financially inefficient um, so you know basically if an organization buys $500 worth of seeds, distributes that to farmers, that's $500 out of their coffers. Uh, so what One Acre Fund does is they basically make interest-free loans to farmers to buy seeds, buy equipment, uh, participate in training, to like learn new techniques, to increase crop yields, etc. Um, and... So one, they're not like saddling them with debt that they're that that something punitive is going to happen if they can't pay it back. But repayment rates are really, really high, like in excess of 95 percent. And then also when that money comes back from the farmers that they can pay back because they do increase yields, then they can loan it out to more farmers to, you know, so it, it basically snowballs and they can help more and more people uh, and the program works like the farmers increase crop yields and improves their quality of life uh, one of the main things that these farmers do when they you know have more money coming in uh, is then then they're able to send their kids to school instead of making them help on the farm um, and it not only increases the you know wealth and income of these smallholder farmers uh, but there's trickle-down effects where it can improve the, the wealth and functioning of entire communities. Uh, so it's, it's tackling a really, really important issue. And I think it does it in a particularly good way. It is hands down my favorite charity. Uh, I'm very, very passionate about it. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very happy that we're able to support them.
0: Awesome. And, uh, like I said, uh, monthly subscriptions are on sale for $21. If you sign up during the sale, 100% of those proceeds uh, go to the One Acre Fund. We also have yearly subscriptions for $209. These are US dollars. Uh, we also have a lifetime subscription on sale for $699. And if you're a current subscriber and you want to upgrade to a lifetime subscription, that is discounted to $599 during the sale. Uh, and if you do, an annual subscription or a lifetime during the sale. Like I said, $21 per subscriber goes to the one acre fund. Uh, okay. So like I said, the sale corresponds to the five year anniversary of mass, which is pretty crazy. It's, uh, I think things really picked up around year three. If I had to, (laughs) why, why do you think that Eric? that was right around the time I got involved Uh, for, for some reason you and Helms and Zordos thought you could go it alone, uh, which I thought was very ego driven and very misguided. But, uh, but yeah, fifth year of mass. uh, So the 50th issue, I think I went back and counted the 50th issue comes out on May 1st. uh, And with mass, every issue has eight articles and two videos per month. So By a quick tally, we're talking about approaching the 400 mark for articles and uh, 100 videos uh, in the archive. And by the way, if you do subscribe, you get access to the entire archive, not just, you know, the stuff that comes up after you subscribe. So, man, that's a lot of work. That's pretty crazy. Yeah,
1: it's going on like five... I I think it's probably cleared 5,000 pages of content already. So you know if, if you subscribe it will keep you busy there's there's a lot of information in there
0: absolutely and you know with mass like you know you're an author like i said Helms and Zordos and me uh we like to to get into the nitty gritty research stuff but but we always try to keep a focus on practical application so i think sometimes people hear about a research review and they're like yeah but you know i I'm not really that into research. I just want to know how to use it. You know, I want the the application, the conclusions. And of course, we always try to highlight that. That's a main focal point of what we do. But, you know, I, I think one of the cool things about reading a research review is that you get some transferable skills related to interpreting research that you can apply to whatever the hell you want. You know, so a lot of times, I'm sure you get this all the time, people will message me and say, here's a study. What do I do now? You know, like I want to know what to do with this, but nobody has reviewed it that I follow. And so I I think it's really cool. What what I always encourage people to do if they do subscribe to mass is if this is a skill set you want to develop interpreting research, I encourage people to go through a study on their own, one that we're going to review in the issue. And before they read our review, do your own review. And, and kind of compare your notes. And I think it can be a really helpful thing that, you know, w- without that key skill of research interpretation, you know you're you're kind of at the mercy of, I hope someone I trust reviews this article, you know, or, or puts puts out content related to it. but it's it's really empowering when you can get some of those skills. And apply it to other studies that that maybe haven't been covered by some of your favorite uh, people that you follow in fitness.
1: Or, or you can take the approach I did, which was uh, start reading research, put your interpretations out there in the world, uh, and then have people a lot smarter than you say, you're full of shit. This is stupid. You missed <laughs> these very obvious things. Uh I mean that that's <laughs> that was my basic process, uh, just looking like a complete fucking idiot for like a year and a half, two years, um, and yeah. I mean, there's uh, there are better approaches to it than that.
0: <laughs> there are, and, and, and like I said, it, it's just uh, even if you you don't think like, oh, one day I want to you know get involved in research or review research as a content creator or something like that just having a little bit of exposure to the process can be such an empowering thing. Because whenever a study comes out that, that makes a lot of noise or something comes out that's very relevant to your needs and you're like, I need to know what to make of this, you can dive in and have a really informed process of trying to get to the root of what's going on in that study. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest additions in mass lately, something I know you're proud about, you 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 made a post about this on Facebook not too long ago, but within the past year in volume four, issue nine, I think that's when we introduced it. We call it the criticisms and statistical musings section. Uh, and, and like I said, we try to always focus on practical application, but we're here to review the research. You know, we, we have to dig into it. And this process of being, you know, fair but critical digging into the statistical aspect of the study, uh, which is very easy to overlook. It's always been part of the process, but now we've really formalized it as kind of a standalone section, really a key pillar of of what we're doing, especially if there's a study where maybe we don't think the stats are particularly up to snuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably one of the coolest things we've done in the past couple years is including that section. I think a lot of people are stoked about it.
1: No, I I think so too. And I think it, uh, I think it adds a lot of value. I think the first way it adds value is it, uh, allows us to separate out the statistics and data issues from the actual application stuff. So one of the issues we, at least in my opinion, that we used to run into, uh, is that if there were any statistics or data issues um, that we noted in a study, we'd try to get through them quickly in the interpretation section. uh, Because we're like, okay, like most people are reading this for the practical application stuff, probably don't want to bog people down reading about statistics or study design or anything like that for multiple pages. Uh, So now that we've kind of isolated that to a a standalone section, um, we can both devote more time and energy to that, to really getting into the issues. And also, since the interpretation section is now mostly opened up uh, to specifically talking about practical stuff and application, uh, I I think we feel a little bit more freedom to get into that a bit more too. So I, I think that it's both improved the quality of the product and improved the process of creating it. Um, and yeah, I, I think, <laughs> I think one of the big benefits as well is, uh, a lot of the studies that you see people discussing, oftentimes like there is stuff about them. That's just kind of like flatly wrong, um, that I just don't see anyone else discussing. So, uh, An example of this that I see brought up pretty frequently, uh, just one example coming to mind, is there was a study from a couple years ago uh, that was looking at the effect of full range of motion versus partial range of motion on triceps growth. Uh, And the the partial range of motion was kind of through the middle part of the range of motion instead of like just the top part of the range of motion. Uh, and, And that study found that the partial range of motion Actually, uh, in caused more triceps growth than full range of motion, which uh, is the first time that's been found in the literature. A lot of people talked about it. Um, one of the things that I haven't seen other people discuss related to that study is the actual amount of like tricep size reported in the study is is literally just not possible. Um, <laughs> so, like the, their subjects allegedly had triceps that I think were. I think they said they were like 50, 60 square centimeters, which, uh, you know, you can visualize that for yourself. No one's triceps are that fucking big. Um, and, and so like, who knows, maybe they just used some sort of formula and they made some sort of error, or maybe they just mislabeled some units for their graphs or or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very clear data issue that, uh, people should dive into and discuss. And, like we did talk about that in mass, but I mean, I, I've seen dozens of people talk about that study and no one else brings it up, which, uh, you know, is, it, it doesn't like completely invalidate the study there, there are, there is probably a very innocent explanation for it, but you know, that's something that readers and consumers of information should be made aware of. And I, I don't see other people making their readers aware of it and and that stuff like that happens all the time. And we get into it in mass and it's not that no one else does, but I don't see it being done nearly frequently enough.
0: Yeah. I mean, my personal experience with that was I got on a a streak of reviewing meta analyses (laughs) and I know I've mentioned it on the podcast before at least certain aspects of it, but I think I did five meta analyses over a stretch of time and three of them were wrong enough that the conclusions were completely incorrect. So like saying that X does Y and like the actual conclusion should have been X does not do Y or vice versa. I mean, they, it's not just like, oh, you know, you forgot a decimal point there and you know, you gotta go edit that. It was just like, this is fundamentally not a true thing uh, because of very identifiable errors and uh and yeah, it's you'll see people talking about the study and like, "Ah, not only do we have a study saying this is true, we have a meta analysis of all things, and it's like, yeah, but it's like very wrong, you know yeah so i I, th- I think that's seeing that play out enough times is kind of what i I think led to us saying we we gotta include this and just kind of make it its own section so people can kind of venture into it at their own risk but you know, it's really important. And so we can
1: just tell people very explicitly what sorts of things to watch out for.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it's not like these are so rare that you'll never encounter the same thing again.
1: Yeah, it's very rare that one of the things we talk about in that section, it's like, oh, here's here's a brand new way that someone messed up their stats. It's like, oh, no, this, this person made the same error that we've seen 30 other fucking people make before. Um, so anyway... Just be aware of that. Here is the issue. When you read research for yourself, you will come across people making this mistake all the time. Uh, here's what it is. Here's how to recognize it, etc. cetera.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the really unfortunate things when people start reading research uh, is that they can develop this kind of apathy, you know, because w- without a really decent grasp on the statistical components and the common errors to look out for statistically... You get into this apathetic mindset where you're like, listen, I can't see the raw data. It's usually not available. I kind of just have to take the researcher's word for it. I don't know how to fact check the statistics here. I I don't know where to even begin or what to look for. Uh, And I think I would like to think that we're helping alleviate that apathy for a lot of people because I think The things we like to do is look at these statistical results like a puzzle. In a lot of cases, you can back calculate things to really fact check the analysis itself. Uh, And sometimes we do that in this particular section. Another thing we're fond of is you see some numbers that look weird and you're like, okay, so you're telling me the mean is this and the standard deviation is this. And we just simulate data. And say like, well, what does that look like? And we can simulate it a few times and get a feel for like, if those numbers are true, what what would this look like in a spreadsheet? Uh, and, and we can use that to kind of fact check and get a feel for some of these things. And sometimes uh, we even extract the data points from a study and just run the analyses differently. We <laughs> say like, you know, there's individual figures here. We can digitally extract the data. Analyze it in a way we feel is more appropriate uh, and then interpret both of those, you know In the interest of transparency. So I would like to think that this section even if you're not like really enthusiastic about statistics I would like to think that some mass readers have begrudgingly found it to be quite helpful and informative
1: No, I I hope so. I think it's really fun because it's um did you ever do those, like, logic puzzles back in the day? Like, you know, uh, Joe is four years older than Susie, and, uh, you know, Tim has a brown stick and is twice as old as Sal, whatever. Yeah. And, and you're just trying to figure out, like, all of... You should be able to deduce things about all of the people. I, I kind of view... uh I kind of view this process the same way. Like, you, you can look at what is reported in a study, and you're like, ooh, based on what's here, I know everything that I can figure out from this data. Let's figure it out and see how well that actually comports with the reported results. Yeah, And like sometimes you just find stuff that's literally impossible. Like one of the things that I enjoy doing the most uh, is granularity testing results. Yeah. So especially in small sample research. So here's a very simple example. Um, If there's you know, let's say there's a study, it's testing strength, measure to the nearest kilo, and there's eight subjects per group. Based on that information, you should know every possible group mean uh, based on the decimal result on the back of it. So uh, eighths will either be, uh, if they reported it to three decimal places, something 0.125, 0.25, 0.375, 0.5, 0.625, 0.75, 0.875, or 0.0. Those are the only possibilities because when you divide a whole number by eight, those are the decimal possibilities. So if you see something where they say there's eight subjects per group and they're measuring strength to the nearest kilo and they report uh, an average squat one RM of like 122.17, then like the chase is afoot because, you know, don't know what they did but something here doesn't add up. And it's I, I think it's fun to then dive in and, and try to figure out what's happening.
0: Yeah. No, it, it is really fun because like I said, it's it's these are puzzle pieces and they if they don't fit together, there's something wrong with the puzzle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh we actually had when I was uh in school, we had a class that was just kind of dedicated to doing those different logic puzzles. And at the time, I thought it was so stupid. And then now that I'm older, I'm like, that was probably the most useful class I took. <laughs> uh, but kids don't know anything, you know? I-, I thought it was such a waste of time. Um, so, looking through, I'm-, I'm looking at the table of contents for this best of issue, and uh, there's some good stuff in here. Uh, y- you've got an article about individualizing training volume, you've got one about uh, ribosome biogenesis and how that relates to uh, volume and muscle growth. You've got one about uh, sex differences uh, w- uh, with regards to fatigue during during lifting. Uh, man, there's a lot of good stuff in here. I, I've got uh, an article that I've mentioned on the podcast talking about glycogen depletion during lifting. Uh, huge myth that we like the glycogen depletion that occurs during lifting is completely physiologically inconsequential. And it's not just like one of those myths where you're like, where the hell did this come from? I think this particular study was one of the things that made it really great was that it showed us methodologically why that was wrong and a more nuanced way to to look at glycogen depletion during lifting. So I, I thought that was a fantastic study. Uh, and then always updating the literature on protein. So uh, I had an article in here about protein distribution looking at the right amount of leucine and amino acids and total protein per meal, how to spread that throughout the day to maximize hypertrophy. so uh, th- and that's just our articles. you know there there's a bunch of great stuff in here by by Zordos and Helms talking about stuff like uh, uh, how close to failure you need to train in order to maximize your gains. Uh, Helms has a progression framework for hypertrophy, kind of how to. Uh, you know, progress your training week over week, microcycle to microcycle, in order to support hypertrophy. Uh, we've got a, an article on the interference effect, which is always a crowd favorite. We get so many questions about the interference effect, uh, and then uh, some videos as well. So Zordos has one about volume cycling, which is a really a really popular idea in the lifting world. The idea of kind of ramping up your volume, but then dropping it back down and ramping up again, and then Helms with a video on translating nutrition guidelines to real life. You know, we, we can put out these, uh, you know, these documents that have like a million numbers in there about how to put a diet together. But ultimately, if you're trying to help somebody with their nutrition goals, you got to make it relatable, and you got to actually turn that into real life recommendations. So uh, this is a very complete issue. Now that I look back at it, this is good stuff. Uh, so if you're interested in digging into that issue, uh, I would absolutely encourage you to do so. Like I said, just, uh, get on the, uh, the email list. I'll put the link to that in the the show notes for today's episode and it'll be yours. Uh, all right. So Greg, I understand that you've got a, a brief research roundup. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. You know what? I put it in the research roundup segment of, uh, of the outline it's more just a brief research review i i, I didn't
0: uh, i didn't want to call you out for that but yeah you no you did violate the spirit of the roundup segment
1: i violate the spirit of the fucking good news segment every single episode
0: yeah we, we really when we set out to do this we had two guiding principles first we're following in the footsteps of bill o'reilly and rush limbaugh that was the first part The second part was, it's a segment show. You got to honor the segments. (laughs) You have to respect what the segments stand for and stay within the constraints.
1: I I suppose this is why I am still only a temporary guest co-host. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is more of like a consumer PSA than anything else, I suppose. Um, So uh, velocity-based training has been getting more and more popular in recent years and with that in mind, a very uh, a very prominent consideration is, okay, so what, what device are you going to use to track and measure velocity? Like, obviously, if you're trying to use lift velocity as a data point to, you know, um, factor into load selection or when to terminate sets, like proximity to failure type stuff, uh, assessing how much fatigue you've accumulated between sets throughout a workout... Uh, Ideally, you want your velocity measurements to be accurate and reliable, Um, and so there are three basic types of products on the market that you can use to ascertain your velocity. Um, There are linear position transducers, which are uh, the ones where there's basically a little string that goes around the bar, and there's a, a... like a, an electronic unit generally that connects to an app via bluetooth and it, it's just straight up measuring how quickly the the string is spooling and unspooling uh it's a, a very simple technology but it works really well so those are called linear position transducers uh tindo was was i think the first one on the market certainly the first really popular one uh Aware's is out there the open barbell system is out there um Let's see uh speed for lifts now called vitruve is out there. That's another linear position transducer and and they're all good. linear position transducers are what is typically used in research if they don't have access to to the gold standard so the the criterion measurement for that is is basically if you have uh like a like a fucking forty five thousand dollar twelve camera system and you can put little markers and and do like frame by frame analysis at like 60 frames per second that that's the gold standard um for for motion tracking and and ascertaining lift velocity uh you know that's that's not feasible for anyone outside of a a research context after that linear position transducers are the next best but uh linear position transducers tend to be kind of pricey uh, so I, I mentioned open barbell. I think it goes for like 250, 300 bucks. Uh, I think Vitruve is similar, like maybe three, 400 bucks. Uh, Tendo and um, uh, Gemaware, they're both 15 to 2,500 bucks. Very, very pricey. Uh, the other two types of products that you'll typically find are um, accelerometer based products. So their thing so there's one I think god I forget what it's called the push band yeah there's the push band um, which I think you wear around your wrist and and basically it measures acceleration as you say stand up or go down or in the case of a bench press as you lower your arm and press it back up Uh, there's one called the beast sensor which is Uh, magnetic and you can just like stick it to the plates and same thing it it measures acceleration Uh, I am not reviewing any studies in in this podcast episode talking about the accelerometry based systems uh, but they're not great they're they're cheaper um, than than the linear position transducers for the most part uh, but they they have more issues they're not as accurate they're not as reliable uh but then the third option the most consumer grade of them all the very cheapest are apps so uh basically using the visual processing capabilities of your phone camera to track uh a barbell through space and uh you know measure and report velocity and range of motion using that uh and so you know you can you can go from linear position transducers which are you know, between 250 and like 2,500 bucks to accelerometry-based products, which really aren't that much cheaper than the cheapest linear position transducers. I don't think anyone should ever use them, but whatever. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, I think, around 150 bucks for the most part uh, to these apps. So I think the most popular one is called Iron Path, and I do think you have to pay for it, but I think it's like five bucks or something. Um, so, th- so, you know, that makes it a really, really attractive option for most people. But the question is, is it good? Does it work? Ideally, it does, uh, but in practice, it does not. So, the the title <laughs> of, really
0: took the took the suspense out of it. Yeah,
1: I did, uh, but that's fine. So the the title of the paper uh, that I that I'm looking at specifically is agreement between the Iron Path app and a linear position transducer for measuring average concentric velocity and range of motion of barbell exercises by Kasavich or kasovic at all uh, came out earlier this year uh, and so um, it, it was comparing the iron path app to a previously validated velocity system that is the open barbell system uh, which again is a linear position position transducer uh, and, and this was a very well done uh, essentially validation study so basically looking to see does the iron path app Produce results that are similar enough to the open barbell system to be useful to people. Um, And so, one of so a lot of validation studies, you know, (laughs) in exercise science, unfortunately, aren't done well. Um, Ultimately, what a lot of validation studies do is look to see on average, uh, you know, in the case of a velocity device is the average velocity reported by device A similar enough to the average velocity reported by device B with one of them being considered the the criterion you're measuring against? So if those two aren't significantly different or are at least like nominally close enough, it's like, okay, that's pretty good. I like to see that. And then the other thing they'll do is just report associations. So, you know, lift to lift, um, how strongly correlated are... Uh, velocity numbers from one device versus the other and generally you know if if you see a r value of 0.8 plus you're like okay like this is working pretty well i like it Um, but ultimately that doesn't give you that much information ideally you want to be able to see kind of lift by lift uh, numbers and to see how badly things can go wrong Um, on the individual level yeah yeah on on a rep by rep basis and so the two sorts of charts you would use to, to represent and show that are mountain plots uh, and Bland-Altman plots. Um, so th- this article has both, and on a Bland-Altman plot, uh, something that is of great use is limits of agreement. So that, that basically shows uh, 95% of the time where will the difference between two measurements fall. Uh, And so, you know, ideally you want tight limits of agreement on a Bland-Altman plot between the criterion device and the new device you're testing against it. Um, So for example, you know, if you see that the Bland-Altman plot is centered at zero, that's good. That means on average there's no difference between the two. And if the limits of agreement are, say, plus or minus 0.05 meters per second, that would mean that 95% of the time, this other device is giving you velocity measures within 0.05 meters per second of uh, the criterion device, which would be really,
0: really good. And it's not biased in either direction. It could be, you know, within plus 0.05 or within minus 0.05. Correct. Yeah. yeah. If
1: if it's centered at zero. Yeah. Um. So that that's the type of thing you would want to see. For the Iron Path app, in comparison to the open barbell system, the limits of agreement were like plus or minus 0.15 to 0.2, which is bad. Yeah. Uh, In other words, if the open barbell system would say that you lifted a load at, I don't know, 0.5 meters per second, uh, the Iron Path app might say you were going as fast as 0.7 meters per second, which is fast or 0.3 meters per second, which is really fucking slow. Um, and, and so just to put that in practical terms, like what 0.15, 0.2 meters per second means, uh, that could be the difference of like 10 to 20% of 1RM. So, you know, 90% of your max in a squat, maybe you can move that at 0.4 meters per second. 0.6 meters per second, that's probably around 70, 75%. Um or, you know, if you're using velocity to quantify proximity to failure, 0.15, 0.2 meters per second, that's like three or four reps worth of proximity to failure. So really it's
0: yeah. Oh, no. I, I mean,
1: it varies lift to lift. So you yeah. lose more velocity per rep as you approach failure, say on the squat than for the bench press. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to vary lift to lift. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, you you could be at one rep in reserve. uh or like a velocity that would correspond to one rep in reserve. And it might be telling you that you're lifting at a velocity that would correspond to like five reps in reserve, uh, like four or five, which, yeah. so that that's not good. Like the, the reason people use velocity to monitor training is, you know, oftentimes they're trying to use it to uh, determine what loads to train at. So for load selection and intensity determination or for determining proximity to failure and when you're dealing with limits of agreement in the 0.15 to 0.2 meters per second range it is not it, it can't do that it's not good it's not good enough for the data it's giving you to be worthwhile like even if you're really really bad at using reps and reserve based rpe I would almost guarantee that that is still more accurate than the Iron Path app.
0: Yeah, and I was going to say that the the main reason people go this route is because they want to take things up a notch with their precision. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, you yeah, know, reps and reserve is fine, but I want to know the speed of the bar. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to get even more precise, and uh, so th- that that's not. Uh, That's not a great stamp of approval with those limits of agreement.
1: No. So, yeah, if you want to get into velocity-based training, um, find a linear position transducer. It's really the way to go. Uh, Like I said, the the accelerometry-based ones are, it seems, better than the Iron Path app, but really not that much better. Like They're still not great. Uh, And of all of the linear position transducers, I think the ones that have the most support backing them up is, is there was uh one study from maybe like two or three years ago that was comparing like eight devices all head to head against each other. And at that point, uh the one that did the best was one called Speed for Lifts, which is recently rebranded to Vitruve. Um so there there's some some good data backing that up. Uh and then the one most often used in research is uh Ah oh, fuck. I always forget it. It's the one I used in my fucking thesis project. Do you use Gemaware? Yeah, Gemaware. Uh, Gemaware is is probably the one with the most research on it. And Gemaware is also really cool because there's a little uh, laser sensor as well to not just look at how much of the, the string has unspooled to measure total velocity. But it's also looking at the angle that the string is moving in. So you can get an idea of bar path as well. Um so yeah, it's it's really good as well. Th- those would be the two products I'd recommend both for a more expensive and a cheaper linear position transducer. Uh, really, I, I just would not recommend either a phone app or an accelerometry based one. I, I just don't think they're good enough to be used for the things people generally would want to use velocity for.
0: And of course, this goes without saying, but I always like to clarify whenever we say like, hey, you got to go with one of these more expensive options. There's a lot of very effective ways to train without measuring your velocity. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If if you want to go that route. Exactly. Yeah. These are by no means a mandatory prerequisite for getting into the gym and making great progress. But
1: yeah, yeah. If you want to get into velocity based training, I, I really do think you need to make the plunge and... And shell out some money for a good device. The 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 cheap ones on the market, and this pains me to say, because I'm the guy that likes the cheapest version of fucking everything. Um,
0: not with clothes. You're a George guy, the George brand. I mean, that's top level stuff.
1: Uh, I I buy myself some George when I'm when I'm feeling fancy. Yeah. Uh, I think most of my I think the median price of the shirts I own is like four ninety five. Nice um but yeah yeah so uh, i would love for the cheapest option to be the best one or at least to be good enough but in, in the case of being able to monitor bar speed that, that's unfortunately just not the case Uh the, the linear position transducers really really are the way to go
0: all right good stuff i've got a, a brief research review here uh I don't know why. I mean, this is one of those classes of supplements I figured I should probably address at some point uh, just because there's always so much interest in these supplements, so many questions about them. So I wanted to briefly talk about testosterone boosters as a category of supplements. And, you know, this is a body of literature that if you are very impatient and you want a very clear answer now, This body of literature is going to drive you nuts. It it will be immensely frustrating. But if you're just kind of along for the ride and passively viewing this body of literature, it's just quirky. It's just kind of funny. So uh, I would encourage you to adopt the latter perspective and just kind of hang on for the ride here Uh, because it is a a very strange body of literature, uh, especially when it comes to how the literature is applied. Uh, When you see the claims on the supplement labels, you're thinking, wow, there must be some very robust evidence floating around out there, Uh, and that's not necessarily the case. Uh, Before I get into the details, I I do want to give a brief shout out to examine.com, because what you find in the testosterone booster literature is a lot of herbal ingredients that have been studied like twice in humans or less. And so whenever I come across some new herbal ingredient, you know, one of the first things I do is I say, has examined talked about this? You know, because they do a very nice job giving a kind of a rundown of what we know about this huge number of supplements out there. You know, I mean, back in the day when I was real young, I worked at a vitamin shop. It's amazing the number of supplements that are on the market, you know, all these things that you've just never even heard of. So Uh, Examine.com is a great one-stop shop for you hear about some random herb and somebody says it increases your testosterone 40%. You might want to look it up and see what's going on. So let's set the stage for the problem here. Uh, So in men, testosterone levels generally tend to peak around age 20, give or take, uh, and when we when men start getting into their 30s and beyond, it starts to decrease on average by like one or two percent per year. So more than a third of men over the age 45 may have lower than normal testosterone levels, and more than half of men over 65 may have lower than normal testosterone levels. Uh, now the reference range for testosterone. There, there's a lot of different estimates out there. There's not like a singular reference range that everybody uses, uh, but it's generally around 300 to 1100 nanograms per deciliter, uh, which is, uh, three to 11 nanograms per milliliter, uh, which is around 10.5 to 38 nanomoles per liter. Uh, Greg, you know, I've recently started uh, reading a lot about Buddhism and uh, listening to a lot of podcasts about Buddhism, and I've become really good at regulating my emotions and just watching them float by as if in a river, just objects passing by, not succumbing to those emotions, not engaging with them.
1: Yeah, that's a real low-T beta move.
0: Not letting them (laughs) commandeer my mind and, you know... But I tell you what, man, when it comes to units in studies... Oh, yeah, yeah. All of that goes out. I put my fist through the screen of my computer. Whenever I do this endocrine research and I'm looking up all these papers and it's like, I'll look up seven papers and there are six different units being used. I'm like, how is this even possible? Yeah. Uh So testosterone, luckily, you're only going to find generally those three.
1: Uh, so I-, I could be wrong, but I think that... I think that America ruins a lot of that. I, I think in I'm certain we do. I think in like the EU and most of the rest of the world, they do it in like uh, magnitudes of moles per liter. So you know, moles per liter, nanomoles per liter, yeah. picomoles per liter, etc. And like we use, we still use metric, you know. So we're yeah. not going to we're not going to say like point 017 ounces per tablespoon or something (laughs) Uh, so we (laughs) that's a disaster so we we still use metric units but like very non-standard metric units which is just fucking bonkers to me like if we're gonna go metric just go with what the rest of the world that uses metric does
0: yeah it's it's really bad it it can be very frustrating Um, yeah units in a lot of this endocrine research Literally drives me nuts, but but those are the three that you are most likely to see there. Um, so so that's kind of setting the stage. We we've got our bearings on the units. I am going to refer to uh, specifically male testosterone levels in this segment because that's where pretty much all the research is is specifically on male subjects for a lot of these. Um, and I'm going to try whenever possible to use that first scale. So talking in nanograms per deciliter. So again, the reference range usually is from like 300 to 1100. And an average value for a young healthy man is usually about 600. But of course, there's a lot of wiggle room uh, around 600 there. So talking testosterone boosting supplements, uh, people in the fitness world, when we talk testosterone, we're thinking performance and body composition. But You know, the symptoms of low testosterone are all over the place. Uh, Someone with, uh, you know, clinically low testosterone might experience uh, swelling or tenderness of breast tissue, irritability, depression, difficulty concentrating, loss of body hair, hot flashes, low libido, erectile dysfunction, and just kind of feeling tired all the time, fatigue. Uh, And so there's a lot of different reasons why a researcher might look into some type of non-pharmaceutical remedy for low testosterone. So I think that's kind of the first thing to remember with this body of literature is you go, Hey, where's all the bench pressing? Well, most of the people studying this don't care about bench pressing. They're, they're, you know, looking at things related to fertility in men who have, you know, some degree of infertility like that. That's where a lot of this research exists. So when we talk through which of these ingredients might actually work to some extent, uh, you know, we want to talk about practical significance, and in order to do that, we have to figure out, you know, what what is the reason for pursuing a test booster? Like, what is the outcome that we're going to focus on here? Uh, and so, based on the context of the podcast, I'm going to assume that we're talking about test boosters here for body comp and performance. Uh, I don't want to suggest that that's the only reason someone might seek. Uh, some type of testosterone intervention, but that's what we're going to focus on because, you know, Stronger by Science, that's the name. Uh, So there's a lot of different ingredients out there uh, that have been researched. I'm going to highlight the biggest ones that you're probably most likely to maybe get talked into trying uh, because they're the most popular. You know, if you Walk into a, a supplement store; it might be the one that somebody tries to sell you on. So, I'm going to get into a little bit of detail about uh, about a couple of big ones, but then just kind of address the uh, the other ones. There, there's kind of a enormous and ever expanding list of things that people say might influence your testosterone levels. But the first one that that really got big in the lifting world. Uh, not chronologically first, but the first one that I'm covering is d aspartic acid or DAA. And the first human trial, uh, to my knowledge, was published in 2009. And it, it showed this big increase in testosterone production. I believe it was 42%. Um, and so people saw that and they're like, damn, this stuff is pretty wild. 42% increase in testosterone. I could use some of that. Uh, but the rest of the research following that didn't really reinforce those impressive findings. And in fact, you know, most of the studies that followed, uh, it's not like there were a ton, but a few trickled out and they pretty much didn't show much at all. Uh, and then in 2015, a study came out that actually indicated that diaspartic acid decreased testosterone levels in resistance trained men. Uh, I don't think it was to a practically relevant degree, but certainly uh, not a 42% increase. So overall, diaspartic acid, it kind of developed a great reputation because of this big first paper that made a splash. Uh, and when that happens, it can be really hard to, to walk that back. W- once something gets out there with these really promising findings, uh, it develops a reputation that can be hard to lose. Uh, but but there's really no consistent effect shown in this overall body of literature when it comes to testosterone. There are, you know, most of the findings that are promising are in people with low testosterone, but even in those people, the, the effects are not super consistent. Um, and there's actually, there's some evidence to suggest that even if testosterone is elevated by deaspartic acid supplementation, it, it may just drop back down to normal after like a week and a half or so, uh, which kind of makes sense when you think about how testosterone works. Uh, you know, we, we've got this axis, this endocrine hormone cascade uh, that starts with the hypothalamus, it goes to the anterior pituitary Uh, then it goes to the testes. So we've got this series of hormones getting released all the way from the hypothalamus down to the testes, and there are multiple areas where negative feedback can occur. So the amount of testosterone in your blood is sensed by the body, and that influences all the hormones higher up on the cascade, and it keeps testosterone in a normal level. These things are controlled within you know what your body thinks is supposed to be kind of the normal range and so uh, you know a very obvious example of this is when people go on really high dose and endo- uh, exogenous testosterone their endogenous production decreases substantially and that's because you know these higher centers the hypothalamus the anterior pituitary they are getting a clear message hey, there is not only enough testosterone, we're like three times where we used to be. Like, there's a lot of testosterone. And so the hypothalamus, the anterior pituitary, they say, okay, that well, that's fine. Certainly, you don't need any gonadotropin-releasing hormone then. And so the system generally tries to regulate itself within a kind of a normal working range. And so that's why I'm not particularly surprised that even if you did find a supplement that maybe got you a little bit of extra, Uh, I wouldn't be stunned to expect that it would kind of just regulate its way back down toward a normal range, but we're going to talk a little bit about the magnitude of increase later. Before we get to that, I want to move on to the second big one that you're likely to see, and that's Tribulus Terrestris. Uh, And this is, I would say, the most popular one out there. Uh, This is kind of the OG uh, as as far as the first test boosters I ever became aware of. Were almost all tribulus centered, um, and there was a great review paper actually in 2019 by Santos and colleagues, and it was called Beyond Tribulus: The Effects of uh, Phytotherapeutics on Testosterone, Sperm, and Prostate Parameters. And so the entire premise of this paper was just like, forget tribulus, <laughs> like we're done with tribulus. Let's move past tribulus because uh, w- within uh, within this review, they pretty much acknowledge they pretty much acknowledge that there's been plenty of work on tribulus. Uh, of course, like any other supplement, there is a couple little glimpses that might have been promising early on, but generally speaking, you look at the tribulus literature whether you're trying to increase testosterone. Uh, enhanced performance, enhanced body composition, when we're looking at people that are otherwise healthy, uh, it, it's just really a non-starter. Uh, and, and there was a systematic review by Quereshi and colleagues in 2014 that directly look at, at looked at tribulus intake, its effects on free and total testosterone within a, a wide range of dosing parameters with trials lasting four to eight weeks. There's just not much there to get excited about. You look like you're about to say something. Yeah,
1: I, I've got a question uh, about these so-called fake news systematic reviews. <laughs> okay. Did they potentially look at the geographic component of the effects of tribulus? Uh, they actually did not. Interesting. So I, I'm on uh, an alternate science website. Uh <laughs> biotest supplement store okay uh, they have a product called alpha male and they they note that they have bulgarian tribulus uh. so let's let's read a little bit of this research tribulus acts as a luteinizing hormone secretagogue in other words it causes the release of luteinizing hormone which in turn signals the testes to produce more testosterone uh, and all of the T boosting compounds and of all the tea boosting compounds on the market, tribulus is the most powerful. So that, that's the first thing that that review got wrong. Uh, <laughs> there are many tea boosting compounds on the market and tribulus is in fact the most powerful of them all. Uh, okay, so it goes on. The brutal reality is most tribulus products on the market are either completely inactive or inferior herbal substitutes that are mistakenly spiked with protodyson. Either way, you get the same result. Nothing. You can't simply take Chinese or Indian or quote-unquote German plant material. I don't know why they put Ger- German in scare quotes there. Uh, I don't know. Regardless, you can't take uh, Chinese, Indian, or German plant material and spike it with protodyson to make real testosterone-boosting tribulus. It's a cheap and ineffective imitation And it's dishonest. And if I know one thing about BioTest, they care deeply about honesty. Uh, Genuine full-spectrum tribulus that boosts testosterone is only found in Bulgaria and contains many powerful compounds vital for producing ideal results. All compounds have to be present in quote-unquote fingerprinted full-spectrum ratios to achieve the maximum effect. Biotest tribulus contains the most potent full-spectrum extraction of real Bulgarian tribulus. Each of the active compounds is present in the required amounts for maximum performance. And now you may ask, what sources did they cite for any of that? I would uh, respond with saying, well, you have the source right here. Uh, I I
0: was going to ask if they then (laughs) followed that up with the randomized controlled trial they funded to... No,
1: no, absolutely not. And here's the funny thing... Uh, they have some uh Euracoma Longfolia or uh longjack uh in the supplement as well, and sure. some uh for Skolin as well. And they do they do actually have a uh references list at the bottom of their sales page, and they they have the they have reference lists for longjack and for skolin, but absolutely nothing for uh for their tribulus, which <laughs> I think is incredible. Yeah. I I love their sales copy so much. It's it's my favorite thing in the fitness industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, see, I he- I hesitate to give a full belly laugh to it because it could be one of those things where there's a grain of truth to it. Yeah. Um. So I'll I'll have to read up more. Uh. On the different subtypes of tribulus, but I, I can tell but you I, with-
1: the the thing is. If that is a thing that exists, and you're already going to have a reference list at the bottom of the page...
0: You'd like to see a
1: reference. Yeah, cite something, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean... At least, like, a fucking rodent study or, like, some some in vitro shit. Like, throw me a bone there about something.
0: Yeah, but I mean... Ooh, just based on the literature that exists with Tribulus in general, I do not have high hopes. I, I can certainly say that with a great deal of confidence.
1: What does it tell you about other testosterone boosting supplements if they're calling that one like the best and most validated of them all?
0: Well, it, it's not. It's not a promising outlook. Uh, I'll say that.
1: All right, you you can continue with the uh, the mainline science now that I have you know, m- made sure that we're teaching the controversy on this podcast.
0: No, see, this is where we get into trouble. So we, you you got in a big internet fight not too long ago <laughs> about being sarcastic on the podcast. And no amount of sarcasm is thick enough to avoid the dreaded one-star review. But more importantly, we we do have to keep our sarcasm to non-fitness topics. So I, I'm officially calling you out for being sarcastic about <laughs> Bulgarian tribulus. If you're listening, don't say that we lost all our credibility because of Greg reading <laughs> stupid sales copy.
1: No, my, my favorite thing about uh, about that argument in my Instagram comments is uh, <laughs> this guy was like, yeah, obviously you don't know how to make your sarcasm Uh, obvious enough, like based on the the review that this person posted, you're not to be taken seriously. And like, since I'm the one and and this was related to, uh, to our our goofs and gabs about marijuana, by the way. Uh, And I just assumed that it was probably someone leaving a one star review about something I said, because most of the one star reviews are about uh, things that I've said. Anyway, I went back and listened to the episode, and it was actually shit that you said. It was me. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I I wasted way too much of my time uh, engaging with that person about something I didn't even fucking say.
0: Yeah, it was like a 60-comment sub-thread it was on really Instagram. It was
1: really fun, though. I, I had a blast.
0: Yeah, well... So his whole point was like, if you're going to do uh, sarcasm, it has to be outlandish enough as to not be taken seriously. You know, you have to go for it if you're going to go for it. I proposed a literal policy in which the state of Oregon would require, legally require citizens to use recreational drugs against their will.
1: And and you you made the statement, there are no values, there are no families. Yeah.
0: what does that even mean there are no families it doesn't there's no meaning to this yeah so yeah anyway if if we're ever sarcastic about actual content i i think we do need to put a little disclaimer so uh there it is moving on uh so anyway in this review they basically said like yeah uh tribulus it's a lost cause but let's move on and talk about some other stuff and they talked about a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but, but the list is is pretty endless. I mean, if, if you look at the broader literature and say, like, what are people uh, claiming as, you know, something that can increase testosterone? Uh, it's, you know, ZMA, fenugreek, DHEA, longjack, uh, maca, mucuna, ashwagandha, black seeds, boron. I mean, it, it is an extensive list of stuff. And I, I think the authors of this review were were quite charitable um, because like, there, there's a lot of bodies of, of research here where there's just like a study or like maybe two studies and it looks like maybe there might be something there that's worth following up on. But I, I can save listeners a lot of time and tell you I've looked into it. I have yet to find a single dietary supplement that has robust evidence indicating that it can increase testosterone to a practically meaningful degree reliably in healthy people. Uh, You might be able to look at some of these bodies of evidence and say for someone with low test, uh, you know, struggling with infertility, there might be some reason to try to use one of these supplements under the direction of a doctor who's treating you for your infertility issue. Um, but but yeah, I mean, this the idea that someone is like, hey, I want to get big and strong, which test booster should I take? There is not robust evidence out there that I've seen to support literally any of them. So uh, hopefully it saves you a little bit of time. Now, if you're listening and you're like, no, I, I think there's one that Eric's missing. He's overlooked it. He just, you know, it's a blind spot. I'm, of course, always open to the possibility that I've got blind spots because the worst part about them is you can't see them. So by all means, you know, send me the name, send me some papers. I'd be happy to review and update on the podcast. But, you know, as I look through these review papers, as I look through the the papers that they cite, I'm just not seeing the evidence to suggest that there is any really good non-steroidal test booster out there on the market today that's going to be worth your while. I even I covered a a brand new one in mass uh, not too long ago, Dioscorea esculenta. Uh, and again, dug into the statistics, the case that they made for it just simply wasn't that strong. Uh certainly not enough to to give it a a really um a really positive recommendation to consumers. Um, I will say that the two biggest effects that were seen that were kind of singled out in this review paper, the two biggest effects, uh, one supplement increased, uh, testosterone by 151 nanograms per deciliter, uh, another supplement increased testosterone by 143 nanograms per deciliter. This was in, Uh, male participants, male uh, patients with infertility. Uh, So again, it's a a specialized population here. Uh, No body comp measurements, no performance measurements, nothing like that. Uh, And the thing about it is it's the two biggest effects that that I saw in this review paper from the same lab published in the same journal using the same dosage, but with different ingredients Uh, and i I don't know what to make of that, but but I would definitely hold off and wait for some independent replication there.
1: That's what I call reliability Th- that that is it's keeping everything else constant except for the ingredient getting the same results yeah, it's that's good stuff, right?
0: Not necessarily oh um, sorry so there's a few things to keep in mind with with this particular body of literature uh, and and this is transferable i mean this this is a series of things that you can translate to a lot of different areas of research. But we've talked about it on the show before, the first finder's effect. The idea that usually the first big flashy paper that gets published on a topic, a lot of times the findings are statistically significant and the effect size tends to be a lot bigger than what we generally see in the following work that comes out later. You know, it's usually a really eye-catching result. Doesn't mean that anybody's at fault, doesn't mean anybody did anything wrong, but a lot of times it's that first big paper where they've really stacked the deck in terms of methodology to find a big effect size, uh, and and it usually gets a lot of attention. And if people have tried to study that before and gotten null results, it's very possible that they just didn't even bother to publish it. Uh, So publication bias is another important factor to keep in mind because, listen, the idea that something doesn't increase testosterone is not exciting. There's a lot of things that don't increase testosterone. In fact, most things don't increase testosterone. So if you're studying some obscure herb that no one's ever looked at and you say I think it's going to increase testosterone and you, you know, do a really small study, not too much time, not too much money and you find, "Oh, here's one more thing that doesn't increase testosterone." you might not spend the months and months and months trying to get that published. And so that's why we can find these bodies of literature where the first study or two or three might give us some optimism and then study four five and beyond comes out. And the effect size goes from, you know, Oh, this is going to increase your test by 151 nanograms per deciliter. And all of a sudden it's down to like, ah, maybe you'll get 10 if we average it out. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is regional homogeneity, and this is something that I've seen this with a number of different bodies of literature spanning several different continents, so it's not unique to any one country or anything like that, but every now and then you will see some ingredient, some uh, food product, some herb that has a lot of significance to a particular country or a particular region whether that significance is economic or cultural or both. And so I have seen meta-analyses that actually separate findings for a particular ingredient by country. And they're like, oh, well, the place where this is grown, it seems to work really well. In all other places, it doesn't seem to work very well. So uh certainly not calling out any individual country because i've seen it with many countries you know it, this is just kind of a thing that happens and it's it's no different than when we look at uh industry funding you know when when we look at you know a series of a body of literature a series of papers and we say oh you know hey when that particular interest group funds it it sure seems to work out pretty well when everyone else funds the research it doesn't work out well so it's something to keep in mind when when you see that you know every positive study comes from one specific place and all the other studies from all the other places are null or negative then that's something that has to be kept in mind another thing is if all the positive findings are in the same journal uh you see that a lot there there's some journals that kind of have their hobby horse topic and like we we just
1: talked about with the we we talked about that with the Myers Briggs journal our last episode yeah yeah <laughs>
0: there's that one um There was one nutrition journal, I'm not going to call it out by name, mostly because I forget the name, but it was very obvious for a while there that if you had a paper that looked good for low carb, high fat diets, they'd take it, period. Like there was this one journal where all those papers were going without fail, and so uh it just happens with journals sometimes. And it you, you have to look at the journal and be like, why is this the only journal where these things are considered science?
1: Yeah, I, I remember which journal that was, but if if you're not gonna call it out, I'm not going yeah, to. You
0: you know the one I'm talking about. You know <laughs> you know which one it is, you didn't fucking forget. I think I know, but I I'm ninety seven percent confident and I don't want to throw the Oh I am one hundred
1: percent, but it, it's fine.
0: Yeah, but it, it's <laughs> You know me. I'm I'm a kind person. I'm not looking for all the smoke, as the kids say. Um, but yeah, this stuff happens. Journals get like a hobby horse topic that they really like to present favorably for some reason. Yeah. Uh, well, I think a lot of
1: it has to do with the power that editors and chiefs have. Like if, absolutely. And and EICs are humans just like everyone else, and people have their their hobby horses, their biases, and you know if if the editor of a journal just decides they really like a particular concept a, a particular compound uh you know they they may just be a little bit less critical of it than they would be for for other things and that's uh you know that that's an unfortunate outcome of you know science being driven by people who aren't perfectly objective but i mean no one's perfectly objective so that's that's always going to happen
0: yeah and so when you when you're looking at a body of evidence, you know if you were to ask me what what are you looking for when you say, oh that that is robust evidence that I feel good about making conclusions from, what you want to see is first of all, plenty of studies for for a lot of these studies or for a lot of these ingredients, there's just not much there. I mean, this is a very sparse body of literature where you've got like a couple papers for each uh, uh, for each ingredient and like, Essentially, almost none of them measure what these things are being marketed for. Like, you're not getting a lot of performance or body comp outcomes here. It's like testosterone and spermatogenesis. Like, you know, so you want to look at a body of evidence with plenty of studies from plenty of different researchers in plenty of different regions uh, who all are approximate uh, approximately finding similar things for this ingredient and of course you expect that there's going to be sampling error you do and expect...
1: ideally the outcome of interest
0: yes that that was the other thing yeah, i intended it, to mention okay yeah. sorry no i i forgot uh but but i i meant to yeah i retract my apology <laughs> yeah but but no you you want to see are they measuring the thing i'm interested in are they affecting it to a practically meaningful degree and is this a finding that is reliable? Is it happening regardless of whose lab it's occurring in, regar- you know, region to region, lab to lab, across the board, we, we should be able to see if this thing works. If it's going to work for me, it should be able to work in a variety of different scenarios and settings. Uh, and so that's what we're looking for. And I'll admit when it comes to supplements, uh, I-, I think that I tend to be a, a bit of a skeptic. Uh, I-, I tend to be a little bit slow to embrace them. Uh generally speaking, I know sometimes people have accused me of the opposite, which is I find interesting, but um these are very toxic accusations being thrown at me. It's hard to be me, Greg. Uh but but I, I tend to sit I, I tend to be a late adopter. That's that's the way Helms put it in one of his articles in masses. Like I, I think uh, a supplement manufacturer or a supplement marketer, someone who's selling the finished product, as a consumer, I do think they owe me a little bit of reassurance, you know, fund a couple studies show me it works and then I'll buy your stuff. I I think that's a pretty fair trade-off. That's the way I view it and that's usually how my recommendations kind of follow. Now, I mentioned that we would get to the practical uh practical application side of things or dealing with practically significant outcomes. So even if you were to take a really, really enthusiastically optimistic view of this literature, this very limited literature for all these additional ingredients, you know, most of these studies are finding increases of, if there's an increase at all, 50, maybe 100 nanograms per deciliter. And so I, I think a lot of times people think in their mind, any increase in testosterone, it's it's like... Any press is good press. <laughs> They're like, if I, if I can increase my testosterone by eight, I'll take it. And that just doesn't seem to be the case when it comes to performance and body composition. This is something that came up in our articles about P ratios because a lot of people are saying, well, you know, if you have excess adiposity, testosterone goes down, that's going to hurt your ability to make gains. Uh, but the amount that we need to move that needle for testosterone levels to really tangibly materially impact hypertrophy and strength gains, we got to change it a lot. And we're not talking about increasing my, my test by 10 nanograms per deciliter. So, you know, the, the classic papers were by Basin and colleagues, uh, his 2001 paper, I was curious, you know, he kind of established that dose response relationship with testosterone. And I was curious, I looked back at, you know, what kind of separation between groups did they really induce with that exogenous testosterone? And, you know, starting the study, everybody was around, you know, from 550 to 650. That was kind of everybody's baseline number. Uh, but man, the the gaps between groups in, in that study were like sometimes as high as 400, sometimes as high as 1,000 nanograms per deciliter difference in blood testosterone, uh, between these groups. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, (laughs) does testosterone matter? It does, but, but we need some pretty big changes in testosterone to, to actually yield practically meaningful differences with regards to our ability to get stronger and put on muscle. So I, I really don't anticipate, uh, that we're going to stumble upon too many herbal ingredients that are going to give us a magnitude of change in testosterone that is really going to move the needle in terms of our ability to make gains. Now, if you're going from a hypogonadal condition and you're working with an endocrinologist and with whatever intervention you're on, you go from well below the normal range to squarely in the middle range, I I think that's going to do something for you. If you're, you know, if you've got a normal, in the normal range of testosterone, pretty average level, and you decide decide to take a ton of exogenous testosterone, that's definitely going to do something for you. Uh, We've seen that quite a few times in high level sport. Uh, But these little changes within the normal range, I'm just super skeptical that you're going to get big return on your investment there. Uh, now, there used to be some stuff that was very interesting on the market. Uh, Greg, you remember the good old days. Uh, oh, hell yeah. I, I never used them because they scared the hell out of me. Uh, but back in the day, there were all these pro hormone. They were marketed as pro-hormones. Uh, and you could go in the supplement store. They were just sitting on the shelf. You know, and any kid could walk in there and grab them. And, like, they were just designer steroids. I mean, these these were oral anabolics that were masquerading as pro-hormones, and they were all over the supplement market in the, like, er, I, I would say, like, the, from probably, like, late 2000s to the early and mid-2010s.
1: Were, were they there that late?
0: They, so, in December 2014, that's when, in the United States, Congress uh, passed the Designer Anabolic Steroid Control Act. That was the act that really put the nail in the coffin. They did some actions before that, like the FDA and stuff. So I, it was on its way down before they really put the nail in the coffin, I think. But, you know, 2005 to, to you know, till the time that they really killed it in 2014. That, that's what my memory gives me. I
1: thought it was 2004.
0: Oh, no, no. 2014 was oh. when they really tightened up. They, they, they tried to put something through earlier and it just didn't work.
1: Yeah. I, I just Googled when were pro-hormones banned. Yeah. And, and it, it says 2004, the Anabolic Steroid Control Act made it illegal for supplements to contain anabolic steroids or pro-hormones, et cetera, et cetera. So there were just like still loopholes in that.
0: So the, the, the one in 2014 was called the Designer Anabolic Steroid Control Act. Mm. So I think that I think that those different pro-hormones were finding enough loopholes that they're like, okay, fine, <laughs> then we're going to expand this.
1: Yeah, it was probably something where like the 2004 one just said like, yeah, we're banning steroids and pro-hormones. Here is a list of steroids and pro-hormones we're banning. And people were like, oh, well, let's tweak these a little bit so they slide through. And in 2014, they were just like, yeah. And all similar ones too.
0: Yeah, I I think that's what happened. But if Rick Collins is listening, he's probably going to be like, "You dumbasses, you don't know anything." Yeah, I mean that 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 would make sense. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, so those things were on the market, and those were they, they were truly, dude. It wasn't okay. There was there was a lot of young kids that were taking them and like didn't realize that they were just like very hepatotoxic. So. I'm glad that those are, <laughs> I'm glad that those are off the market, but, uh, yeah, so those might've done something, but, you know, tribulus, it, it's just not going to do it, uh, at least not based on any of the evidence that I've seen.
1: And not outside of Bulgaria.
0: Correct. Uh, so then the question is, you know, s- someone who is interested in supporting, uh, you know, their natural endogenous testosterone production, keeping it within the normal range, What what can you actually do? Um, you know, there, there is some truth to, to the idea of avoiding excess adiposity. Uh, you know, there, there is a reduction in testosterone levels when body fat starts to get really, really high. You know, w- there is a relationship there, as we discussed in the P-ratio discussion um it's, you're probably not going to be able to moderate or, or modulate your adiposity to specifically boost hypertrophy. It's just a magnitude thing. But you know, if, if someone were to say, if I want to just hedge my bets and do my best to keep testing the normal level, not specifically for hypertrophy, but for all those other things I mentioned, right? So all the stuff that can be associated with a hypogonadal condition, uh, avoiding excess adiposity would be a good idea. Other things you could do, of course, Sleeping well is going to be a good way to support keeping your testosterone, uh, you know, within a normal range, exercising, but avoiding extended periods of really severe overtraining, managing stress to the best of your ability, avoiding extremely low energy availability, avoiding extremely low fat intakes, avoiding extremely high intakes of phytoestrogens, uh, We've seen studies giving people up to like 80 grams of soy protein a day, no problem in terms of androgen and estrogen uh, signaling, Uh, but there are some case studies of very, very, very high phytoestrogen intake uh, that that would cause you to say, well, let's just keep it in a, a reasonable range there. You want to avoid regular consumption of really high alcohol doses. Uh, and of course, you want to avoid micronutrient deficiencies. Uh, some key ones that that come to mind, things like boron, zinc, magnesium, vitamin D, you want to make sure you're getting plenty of them. Uh, and that's pretty much it. And if you're doing those things and you, you have some of those symptoms of being hypogonadal, you think you might have low testosterone, you want to do something about it. At that point, you, you talk to a physician. You go. You go get some blood work done, and uh, you, you you know your physician will take care of you. Maybe they refer you to an endocrinologist, but you know, do do the normal medicine stuff. Sometimes it's good. You know, just do medicine. It's fine. Makes sense to me. All right. So I think you have a coach's corner segment. Is that correct? I
1: do. I do. Excellent. Uh, So I, I want to talk about sticking points a little bit and just how to think about them, I suppose. So one of the places where I think people uh, tend to go wrong, tend to go astray uh, when they're thinking about their sticking points is they might look at video and say like, oh man, I I see where I consistently miss lifts if I end up missing them. Uh, And on lifts that are big grinders, I see where the bar is moving the slowest. Uh, And then you just use a little bit of logic and you're like, okay, when something's easy, you move it fast. When when it's hard, you move it slow. Therefore, the point that you're moving at slowest is probably the hardest point in the lift, right? Uh, I, I think that's a pretty natural chain of logic that people often follow. And so, as a result, uh, a lot of training ideas around um, you know training sticking points, trying to get stronger through a sticking point, uh, is to target those ranges of motion. So you know, a a typical uh, sticking point or a a typical point of minimum velocity or a typical point where you might miss a lift that you do end up missing in the squat might be a little bit above parallel. For bench press, it might be, you know, three, four inches off the chest. Uh, And so you might look at that and say like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to do maybe pause squats slightly above parallel or like slightly high box squats or something like that. Uh, for bench press, maybe a low board press, like a one board press, a two board press, uh, really to build strength through that range of motion where the bar is moving the slowest or where you would typically miss a lift. Um, and, and that, you know, uh, I used to think that way as well. That's that's definitely a logical thought process. Uh, but that is not actually your weakest point in the lift. So to think about this, uh, I think it makes the most sense to just think about it from like a basic physics perspective. So we know that force is mass times acceleration. Uh, Your body mass is the same all the way through a lift. The weight on the bar is the same all the way through the lift, unless you're using accommodating resistance, but we're just talking about straight weight for now. So you can just uh, forget about the mass part uh, and just look at acceleration. And so when you look at a trace of velocity with respect to position or velocity with respect to time for a lift that's a big grinder what you see is right when you move the bar say out of the hole on the squat or off your chest on bench you see uh, an uptick in velocity the bar was not moving in the positive direction and now it is moving in the positive direction Uh, and then Velocity starts dropping off pretty rapidly. It eventually gets very very slow approaching zero velocity That is you know the range where bar velocity is at its slowest And then once you break through that sticking region the bar starts accelerating again Velocity starts going up and then eventually it drops back to zero as you're approaching lockout Uh, and so acceleration is change in velocity Uh, and so when velocity is going down acceleration is negative negative. And that means force output is lower because, again, force is mass times acceleration. Um, And so, uh, as a result, if you're interested in how much force you're exerting on the bar, you shouldn't be looking at bar speed. You should be looking at changes in bar speed. And so where that bar is decelerating, that's actually where you're putting the least amount of force into the bar. Uh, And that is basically right at the very bottom of the lift so (laughs) if you uh if you do have access to say a linear position transducer and you you can look to see what that uh velocity with respect to time graph looks like you know a quarter of a second after you start the concentric you've hit that first peak velocity and, and you start decelerating so you know rather than the weakest point in your squat being right above parallel you know, it's, it's fucking an inch above where you start your concentric. Uh, And for bench press, you know, instead of it being like three, four inches off the chest, it's like half an inch off your chest. Like you get the bar moving and it starts decelerating pretty quickly after that. Uh, So, you know, just based on actual force output, that's what's going on. Your actual weakest point in the lift is actually quite a bit before the point of, of minimum bar velocity. And in fact, it's probably even earlier than that. Um, so one thing going on really for all of your lifts, except for deadlift, really. Um, so squat, bench press, anything that starts with an eccentric phase, uh, you're going to have some degree of the stretch shortening cycle kicking in. There's a lot of things that go into the stretch shortening cycle. There's uh, some degree of elastic recoil just from elastin in your tendons, and um, there's some central potentiation of muscle activation and muscle contraction due to the preceding eccentric. Uh, And also, I, I think one of the most important mechanisms of the stretch shortening cycle that's talked about the least is an enhanced quote unquote active state. And so what that is basically is as you're reversing the eccentric, so, you know, as you're decelerating as say in the squat, as you're nearing the end of the eccentric and you're about to uh, reverse the lift and start standing back up again, uh, you're not having much change in muscle length between the very, very end of the eccentric and the very, very start of the concentric. And so you can develop a lot of actin-myosin cross bridges in the muscle at that time, uh, you know, during what's called the amortization phase. And the more of those cross bridges you develop, the more you can just you know, kind of like shoot out of the bottom like a spring, pretty much like you can develop more cross bridges than you typically would be able to during that time. So you put all of those things together. uh, And during, you know, even like a normal length pause bench press during a squat without a super long pause, there's going to be those stretch shortening cycle related mechanisms in play. Uh, So they're kind of, I don't want to say artificially giving you a boost. But they're allowing your muscles to contract for, for a split second, actually less than a split second, between like a quarter of a second and half a second, uh, for a very, very brief period of time, allowing your muscles to contract harder than they would otherwise be able to. When you look at studies that actually look at isometric force output, so you know, no preceding eccentric phase, you just get someone, uh, and see how much force they can output, you know, at the very bottom of a squat, five centimeters above that, five centimeters above that, etc. They're the weakest at the very, very bottom, uh, without the, like the stretch shortening cycle is why you have that initial little peak in velocity in the first place. But when it just comes down to like raw muscular horsepower, the very, very bottom of the lift, at least in the case of squat and bench press, like that's, That's the weakest part. So when it comes to training sticking points, it doesn't make much sense to focus on the range of motion that's a little bit above that. Uh, You just want to train for strength at the bottom, and that's what's going to give you the most return on investment. And I'll also note, uh, if you have those standard sticking points, like standard places where you miss a little bit out of the hole on the squat, uh, two, three inches off the chest for bench, that doesn't mean you have any particular muscle weakness. You're just too weak. Like that's a normal ass place to miss. And that's where you're going to miss because that's, you know, that's pretty soon after where the lift is the hardest and the bar is decelerating. Uh, so when you when you think about training sticking points in that context, what you want to do is just focus on the very bottom end of the range of motion. So, you know, that could even be like isometrics. Like, uh, you know, for bench press, Set the pins to where the bars at chest height. Put way more on the bar than you can actually bench, and just do isometrics against it. Same thing for for pin squats. Just you know, load a bunch of weight on the bar. Try to stand up against it. You won't be able to. But that's you know very highly specific training. Uh, if you want to do some dynamic training to train those parts of the range of motion, uh, you know, instead of things like board press or slightly above parallel box squats, it would be things like. Pin squats with the pin set at full depth or pin press with the pin set at chest height or even exercises that cha- that train a longer range of motion than you would typically do. So for example, uh, if you have access to a cambered bench bar, sometimes called a McDonald bar, I think that's absolutely excellent. Uh, extended range of motion push-ups, similar type of concept, lets you train through a longer range of motion than you would typically be able to for bench. Uh, for squat, if you squat any style for competition or just for your, your 1RMs that is you know, specifically engineered to let you hit the required depth but not go deeper, if there is a technique that lets you go even deeper than that, that would probably be beneficial for training your weak point in the squat, which you know, would be slightly higher than that extended range of motion technique would allow you to squat. Uh, so I, I think... Things like that are are really your best bet for training your sticking point, which, again, isn't the slowest point in the lift. It's the very bottom of the lift. Uh, the place I think that's different is the conventional deadlift. So uh, the reason the conventional deadlift is different is some people, you know, they, they either break the bar off the floor and lock it out, or they uh, don't. Uh, most people, however... Can break the bar off the floor on a lift they end up missing, but still miss at some point below their knee. Um in a conventional deadlift is not preceded by an eccentric. You shouldn't have much stretch shortening cycle at all going on. Like maybe you get a little bit if you like really try to get tight and pull yourself down to the bar, but it, it's not the it's not going to be the same as like a full eccentric. Um so I, I do legitimately think that. You are a little bit weaker, maybe two, three inches off the floor on the deadlift than you are at floor height. Again, if you have that sticking point that's shin height below the knee. Uh, so if if that's you, uh, I do actually think slightly reducing range of motion might be uh, a way to train your sticking point. So, you know, probably like the lowest, um, uh, what do you call it? I have it in my notes. Block pulls, yeah. Man, my brain's not working today. Like, the lowest of block pulls you can manage. So, for uh, for, for me, I, I have, uh, like, like I'll, I'll just do block pulls on, like, a 25-pound bumper plate or, like, a 45-pound bumper plate. So, you know, that's elevated off the ground an inch and a half, two inches up to about four inches. I find, for me, that that is harder than deadlifting from the floor, Uh, which is an indication it's doing what it's supposed to do. And and honestly, I think that's one of, that should be your first tip off that like slightly high box squats and like two board press might not be the best way to train your sticking point. Most people who have experience with two board press can two board press more than they can bench their chest. Uh, which, which should suggest that two board press height is not your weakest point, you know? Um, but yeah, so, so I, I do think with conventional deadlift, um, that style of thinking is perhaps beneficial where, you know, maybe like a very, very low block pull uh, is a good way to go about training that sticking point And maybe you're not actually your weakest at the floor. Uh, but yeah, for, for the most part, squat, bench, sumo deadlift, your weakest at, at the very bottom of the lift, train that. Like that's that's your sticking point. That's where
0: you're weakest. Sounds good to me. Now, Greg, did you have any specific Q and A questions that you absolutely need to answer this week?
1: I know you wanted to be gone by five, which is one minute from now. Uh, you know what? You know what? We could do a really quick Q and A episode at some other point. Just you know, forty-five minutes, an hour, in and out.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we can hold off on yeah, it. Yeah.
1: Let- let's let's just do that and wrap up
0: now. All right. Well, to play us out, we've got two things. And don't worry, I don't have to be out at exactly five. We'll be okay. Um, to play us out, I've got a quick shout out to a great company I learned about today. <laughs> I, I know you've got something as well. So, <laughs> man, I was absolutely tickled by this. I was, you know, just reading around, uh, reviewing some literature. I was looking at a, a particular study involving beta ectysterone, which is a phytosteroid, um, and you know, as a good research reader, of course, I'm reading the methods. I'm not just jumping down to the conclusions and in the methods, uh, a paper is going to describe the materials they used, uh, and where those materials were obtained from. And <laughs> so one of the concepts we've talked about many times on the podcast is the dreamer bulk. And for those who, uh, are just jumping in, uh, in season four here, A dreamer bulk, it gets its name from someone back on the bodybuilding forums whose username was Dreamer or or some something related to Dreamer. And, you know, he endeavored to gain a great deal of muscle. He said, I'm going for it. I'm gonna eat a ton, I'm gonna lift, I'm gonna get huge. And it was a bit of a bit of an unfortunate attempt. At, at, at building a lot of muscle, um, you know, I don't want to pick on this individual, but it just became a funny concept. The idea of the dreamer bulk was I'm just going to eat everything in sight and lift and trust that I'm going to gain all muscle, no fat. and And that usually isn't going to be the case. And in his progress pictures, he took them with very unfortunate lighting at a very unfortunate angle. And again, I don't want to poke fun at the individual, but Some of the later progress pictures did resemble the concept of him maybe morphing into a frog. Is that a diplomatic way to say it? Uh,
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. Uh,
0: And so, you know, it's not like I made that up. It was an intuitive enough conclusion that people started talking on the bodybuilding forums about this imaginary supplement called Frog Tech. Uh, This was back when Cell Tech was the funny thing you'd say about it. Cell Tech was saying that you'd gain like a billion pounds of muscle. Any supplement making outrageous claims, people would say, "Oh, you must be on Cell Tech or something." Uh, if if you made a lot of gains, so they, they started talking about this thing, Frog Tech, <laughs> that would, you know, essentially give you great gains and I guess make you look a little bit more like a frog and. Uh, so I'm reading this ectysterone paper today and I'm like, oh, where did they get their product from? Well, it was 95% purity manufra- manufactured by no other than a company called FrogTech located in Russia. So there is a legitimate FrogTech supplement out there for anyone who wants to get that as really just a memento. I, I think just as a keepsake for anyone who was involved uh, on the forums back in the day.
1: Eric, I have a question for you. Sure. Did you look up uh, Frog Tech's social media fingerprint? I did not. Uh, so they have an Instagram account that okay. I've come across. Uh, I- I'm pretty sure it's the real thing. The, in In it, they link to the website FrogTech.ru. Okay. In uh, the Instagram account, if you want to look for it, is just Frog underscore Tech. You know, it 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 has the the handle, so I, I think this is real. Um, this is one of the, one of the weirder, uh, supplement Instagram accounts I've ever come across. So it's, it's pictures of supplement bottles. Very normal. Okay. Uh, pictures of pretty jacked looking people, uh, standing with frog tech products in hand. That's pretty out. normal. Uh, a lot of Pepe memes. Oh. Like this is not a frog tech from the com forums type uh
0: tribute oh doesn't that have like very regrettable connotations
1: yeah so this is a uh a pepe themed supplement company oh boy and uh there's just straight up porn on their instagram account what yeah uh there are several pictures of women who are wearing like you know like bikini bottoms but then their upper body—it's just body paint.
0: Oh wow! Um,
1: so th- well, this,
0: this turned from a very f- uh, funny coincidence to a very regrettable segment.
1: It's still funny. It's just funny in a different way. I,
0: I, you, you just can't have nice things anymore. I, I saw some funny. Oh, frog tech—that was a thing people used to joke about. Who knew it was real? And and it's been ruined. You, I found one very lighthearted, funny thing, and you, you. Launch an asteroid right at it.
1: I, I think that a Pepe branded supplement company is very funny. <laughs>
0: okay, whatever you say. I, I'm I'm scared to death of this because I know that there's negative connotations associated with that. But as you know, Greg, I don't participate in society. I don't know what any of it's about. So I have no idea what world I'm venturing into here. And frankly, I don't want to know. My okay. world's fine. I wake up, I sit by the pond, and I read, and then I come over here and I write. Fair
1: enough. So if you want to buy Frog Tech supplements, just enter the code SBSPOD at <laughs> checkout. No, that, that is a complete joke. Uh, okay, so, so my to play us out thing. I actually have two things. Uh, the first is uh going to talk about my meal prep for this last week because I'm very tickled with it. It's very, very good. Uh, it's, it's basically like it, just a kind of quiche-esque breakfast casserole that is delicious. Uh, so I have a, a very, very large baking dish. Uh, it's like 11 by 17 by 4, and it, this took up every every possible square inch of that. Uh, so very, very voluminous. Uh, it, it was 36 eggs, a quart of 2% milk. Uh, about three pounds of diced ham, nine pounds of potatoes, and two pounds of reduced fat cheddar cheese, and uh, like three pretty large onions. Um, so you know, just uh, cubed up the and, and parboiled the potatoes, uh, so cubed into a, about half inch cubic cubes, uh, bo- uh, parboiled them until they were just about but not quite done, uh, drained them. Let them cool, uh, and then beat the eggs. Beat the milk in. Poured that over the potatoes. Stirred in the ham. Stirred in the cheese. Finely dice the onion. Stirred that in. Uh, just bake at three hundred degrees until uh, it's pretty set, but the st- the center's still a little jiggly. Uh, and if you want to temp it, the thermometer should register at least like one sixty-five, one seventy. That's around the point that the eggs will be will be set up enough. Uh, and then you just cut it and serve it, and it's it's so good. Um, I think per serving it's like forty nine grams of protein, forty four grams of carbs, like twenty four, twenty five grams of fat. Uh, and it's it's just everything one would hope breakfast would be. Uh, the the middle pieces are just exactly what you're going for with a custard. So it, it's set, but still super creamy very delicious. Uh, this, this is definitely one of my favorite recent meal preps.
0: Nice. Now you've also got a link here. I I know you're probably trying to be conscious of time, but I I can't, I can't resist. (laughs) The the link just says, where do eels come from? What could that, that possibly mean?
1: That's exactly what it is. Uh, so, so shout outs to my wife, uh, Lindsay she recently read this article and sent it my way. It's called "Where Do Eels Come From?" It's from the New Yorker magazine uh, from May of last year, and the title is self-explanatory. Uh, it is about eel reproduction and how it is still a complete mystery. Um, so, what? so yeah, yeah. Scientists know where baby eels originate. Uh, at least, like European eels, they come from the Sargasso Sea. Um, and they know that eels go through, like, several life, life stages, so, like, they start as, like, basically little, like, larva-type things, drift along the tides to Europe, and then they become, like, brown eels that just, like, hang out in, like, ponds and streams and whatnot, and then eventually they turn silver, uh, and they're, uh, they, they go back into the ocean, presumably to reproduce, And somehow, their eggs and larvae wind up in the Sargasso Sea, but the adult eels have never been seen in the Sargasso Sea before. (laughs) Uh, No one knows how the fuck they reproduce. Um, Turns out, Sigmund Freud makes, uh, makes an appearance in this article. Apparently, as a young man, he was obsessed not with human genitals, but with eel genitals. He would just buy hundreds of pounds of eels and dissect them and just try to find the gonads, and he could not find the gonads. He's like, how the fuck do these things reproduce? Turns out, we still don't really know how eels reproduce. Um Have we not? Are there any eels in captivity? They don't reproduce in captivity. Oh, So we, we have no idea. Um There was... Oh, man. So th- there was a great quote from the German biologist Matt Schultz, uh, and, and this was from back before like quantum mechanics was discovered and people started like really getting an idea of just how weird reality is uh y- you know this was before like dna was discovered etc like back when people were way overconfident during the the modernist era uh so the german biologist max schultz on his deathbed uh this is a quote uh lying on his deathbed observed perhaps wistfully that he was leaving a world where quote all the important questions had now been settled. All of them, that is, except for the eel question. So, you know, back during the 1800s, uh, th- that was the last great mystery of the universe. The, they did not have an answer to the eel question. And we still don't have an answer to the eel question. And I wow. had no fucking idea. And this was a really, really cool article that we will link in the show notes. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did.
0: I'm going to criticize Freud here a little bit. I feel like if you were dissecting any being looking for the reproductive organs, wouldn't you think after like 2 or 3 tries like this just isn't for me? Like I'm not going to be able to do this. Fro- I don't I don't know why you'd have to try that many times.
1: F- Freud was really into genitals. Like yeah. just
0: I mean that's the way- brand,
1: right? Yeah, I mean he 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 was on his bullshit from a young age.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. Uh I can't believe that. Uh I if you would have asked me if there were any animal that I could name like that I know of that we had not figured out how it how it reproduces, I wouldn't have thought one exists. That's yeah. absolutely amazing.
1: It is the eel.
0: Um well, hey, ended the show on a great note. Um, all right. So thanks for listening. As always, we will be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do. So we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You could sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.